Hey, how's it going everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to episode 55 of the Essential X-Labs, where we wrap up our three-part look into the return of Magneto in the pages of Avengers, which will take us pretty neatly up to the next uh, actual X-Men story we'll be uh, covering in the next several episodes. Let's hop right in. This is Avengers number 49, had a February 1968 cover date. Story is called Mine is the Power, written by Roy Thomas with art by John Buscema. Letters Artie Simic, colors, oh, you know. Uh, and edit Stanley, cover price 12 cents. Now we open, and I was hoping, I was hoping against hope that we would uh, miss this bit of the story, but uh, no, no, we are in Olympus, uh, which is where we're going to be spending more than just a little bit of time this issue. Here, okay, we've got Hercules, right? He's still, you know, pounding his head. He's trying to figure out what in the world is going on here. And so he decides to head to the Temple of the Promethean Flame for reasons that we'll talk about shortly. Along his way there, he is blocked by an Earth-shaking explosion. Are we still on Earth? I don't know. Anyway, uh, when the dust settles, Herc is faced off with the Dread Typhon. Now, Roy dazzles us with Greek Myths 101 by having the Prince of Power exposit that Typhon had been long exiled from Olympus by Zeus himself. And Stan drops a footnote here basically to say, yeah, 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 Roy, get on with it. Typhon explains the situation. You see, he's been planning his revenge against Zeus for millennia. And so, just a couple days back, he was able to weasel his way back into Olympus, where he managed to extinguish that eternal Promethean flame. Now, when the light went out, this caused all Olympian life, even Zeus himself, to vanish, as though they'd never existed in the first place. And so Hercules responds by taking a knee and sobbing. And this is where we leave him for now. We head over to the Avengers' mansion, where Goliath is trying to figure out their next move and trying to rescue Quicksilver and the Scarlet Witch. Hawkeye is sat at the table, still brooding over Cap having quit the team, which... Come on, dude. Get a grip. Uh, Jan walks in uh, after a shopping trip, because uh, lest we forget, uh, women be shopping. I do wonder if this rule applies to Woodrow Wilson scholars, are Roy? Eh, I don't know. Anyway, Hank snaps at her for not taking this seriously, and then he backhands her into the wall. Okay, no, that, that doesn't happen. Yet. Uh, he actually shows her a diagram he designed for an all-new Ant-Man helmet. You see, he's been having issues being Goliath for a little while now. You see, his body just can't maintain the massive Goliath frame. And so he is desperately looking for a way to stay in the game here. He can still shrink down. So maybe it would be in his best interest to become Ant-Man again. We scene shift over to Island M in the Bermuda Triangle, where Magneto's crazy craft lands, and he escorts his prisoners, Wanda and Pietro, up a long flight of steps. Now Toad, he's doing what Toad does. He's bouncing around, suggesting that they just kill the Maximoffs. He's like, drown them, drown them, do whatever, get rid of them. You can't trust them. Magneto then brings them all inside, and we can see that the innards of this place are chock full of technology and fake-ass Kirby tech. Now, he claims to have unlocked the most valuable energy source of all, magnetically induced perpetual motion. So, uh, I guess if you have a pacemaker, you're kinda out of luck. Now, after sitting the kids down, our baddie decides to make one last plea to get, him, to get them to return to his side. Now, his plan is, it's a strange one here, he wants to use the island, Island M, as a mutant safe haven. Huh. Huh, I never heard that before. And that uh, 
here's the thing. His war against the Homo sapiens is over. All he wants to do right now is live in peace while protecting his fellow mutants. And so he'd like to take the Avengers with him to the United Nations so he might plead his case on the global stage. And I mean, one panel later, that's exactly what we're about to do. We've got Magneto, Toad, Quicksilver, and the Scarlet Witch sauntering right up to the United Nations building, which is currently crawling with reporters as the UN is currently in assembly. Magneto tells the press that he comes in peace. He then gets a microphone shoved in his face where he gives a a no comment, but does explain that he will speak before the assembly. Now, this is being televised, of course, and so Hawkeye and Goliath are back at the mansion seeing it play out on the TV. And they're pretty shocked to see that the big bad is being flanked by Wanda and Pietro. Goliath and Hawkeye refer to each other as Bowslinger and Man Mountain in the same panel. Come on, Roy. Uh, This causes me to cringe severely before they call out for the Avengers to assemble, which is basically saying, Jan, get in here, because there's only three of them. Now, they're going to head to the UN to get a better look at the situation. Meanwhile, back at the UN, Magneto is trying to gain entry to the assembly hall, but he is stopped by a gaggle of officers. And so he hoists one up via his magnetic powers before dropping the cop to the ground without killing him. And this seems to be enough for the cops to deduce that, you know what, maybe Magneto has turned over a new leaf because he didn't kill me. Our baddie then doubles down by following upon his act of mercy by, uh, well, literally breaking down the doors to the assembly hall while spouting that there's no man alive who can block his path. All right, all right, you know, I love the energy, but uh, mixed messages, Mags, gotta, gotta, gotta govern, you gotta, you gotta cool it. Anyway, the UN delegates are, as you might imagine, less than pleased at being interrupted. And they're also pretty surprised at seeing a pair of card-carrying Avengers serving as Magneto's backup. Now, with the full attention of the United Nations, Magneto lists his demands, and and there aren't very many of them. He basically wants mutants to be granted as a separate nation, which, again, we've kind of heard that, well, we've heard that since. We haven't heard it before, we've heard it since many, many, many times. He also wants mutants to have a say and veto power on the UN Security Council. He explains that without this, there will never be peace between humans and mutants. The Assembly doesn't even have to think it over here. They have their answer immediately, and they tell him to get his red and purple ass out of there, basically. And so Magneto responds by, uh, well, hurling a microphone directly at the face of the first UNer who spoke out against him. Before it can go through the Delegate's Dome, it's struck by a purple arrow. Huh, wonder who that could be. Alright, it's it's Hawkeye, duh. So he swoops in wearing his non-ferrous costume using synthetic non-metallic arrows, and he acrobats around the room for a bit. He kicks Magneto and Monkey flips the toad. Goliath and Wasp also storm into the place, but not actually onto the panels just yet. Now here's the kicker. A couple of UN officials draw their pistols and aim on Magneto. While down, Magneto uses his powers to make it so the UNers are actually aiming at Wanda when they pull the trigger. And so they fire, and one of the bullets actually winds up grazing her head. Quicksilver rushes to her side, as do Magneto and Goliath. Pietro lets out a cry, disgusted that it was a human who shot his dear sister. Magneto calls out that Goliath approaches, and so Quicksilver spins around and punches the bejesus out of the uh, man mountain. Hawkeye tries to settle Pietro's tea kettle by firing off a rope arrow to tie him up until he can calm down. 
but that ain't gonna stop a brother who is creepily scorned, and so he lunges headfirst into Hawkeye's gut, taking him down. Now, all the while that Quicksilver is acting out here, he is spouting that he considers himself to be a fool for not listening to Magneto. He picks up his sister and proceeds to stomp out of the place shoulder to shoulder with Magneto and Toad. I mean, not exactly shoulder to shoulder with Toad, but, you know, alongside Toad. Now, the Wasp tries to get in his way, if only to try and talk him down. Magneto uses his powers in a most Liefeldian way and whacks the Wasp with a pen. Pietro next loads Wanda into Magneto's crazy craft, and uh, Wanda begins to stir here and claims that she might have a touch of amnesia, which, I mean, what else is new for the friggin' Scarlet Witch, right? We wrap up this bit with a trio of Avengers back at the mansion thinking about this massive goof-up and thus adding to their pile of massive goof-ups over the past couple of issues here. Um, Well, Wasp and Goliath are thinking about this. Uh, Hawkeye is still sitting there, crying over the fact that they'd been forsaken by Captain America. Then we head to the back end of the issue here, and we are back to Olympus, where Typhon and Hercules tie it up for a bit. Typhon unleashes a beast called Tartaro, which Herc spends about a page and a half besting in battle. He is then sent to a land of shadowy mists and sinister shadows via Typhon's teleportational battle axe. Okay, then. And we close out the issue with Typhon sat atop Zeus's throne. And thankfully, this is where our stint with the Earth's Mightiest comes to a close. At least for now. Next episode, we head back to the flagship, but still with Magneto. So what do we have to say about, well, this issue and I guess the past few issues of Avengers now that this arc is, uh, or at least the Magneto portion of the arc is over with? I think as a collective, definitely a net positive here. I enjoyed the Magneto bits, and I definitely enjoyed how clever it was to have him use his powers the way that he did here in order to play up on um, Pietro's somewhat creepy obsession with his own sister by endangering her, by having a uh, UN guy fire a bullet into her head. Um, I mean, that's kind of a high-risk, high-reward sort of gambit there, and uh, lucky for Magneto and, I suppose, people who like the Scarlet Witch, uh, that it uh, worked turned out the way that it did. It puts the band back together, the Brotherhood band back together, in a sort of organic sort of way, right? Um, While Quicksilver and the Scarlet Witch... They probably still have no love lost for Magneto. There, or Pietro, I guess, is latching onto this sort of feeling of self-preservation in light of a human shooting his sister in the head. It would certainly make sense for him to be skeptical. And then how it played out after that with kinda with Magneto kinda taking uh, Pietro off off kilter and, you know, warning him that Goliath was approaching, you know. It would make Pietro think, you know, in the heat of battle here, in the heat of the moment, that the Avengers may be attacking him. Really well done stuff here. Um, As for the Avengers bits of this issue, uh, Hercules and Olympus does nothing for me. That really doesn't doesn't jazz me at all. And, uh, you know, Hawkeye's odd obsession with Captain America is, um, I don't know, I guess it's kind of humorous. I don't know if it's supposed to be. But the fact that every time he gets a spare moment, he's like... Cap, why did you forsake us? <laughs> why, we're just some costumed has-beens now. Why did you leave us? It's, I don't know, it's kind of funny. I feel like I'd be remiss not to mention the, uh, the concept of a mutant nation being uh, brought to the fore this time out. I feel like it's so weird looking at this with hindsight because 
Like, every time there's, like, a brave new approach to the X-Men these days, it's about the mutants trying to start a nation, <laughs> or trying to govern themselves. Of course, you know, we see it right now with the Krakoan stuff. We've seen it during uh, X-Men Red with Gene actually trying to get a seat, or actually maybe getting a seat on the UN uh, Council. We've seen it with Utopia, we've seen it with Genosha. I mean, we see it a lot, but uh, seeing it here for the first time, it's kind of neat. What's also kind of interesting is how we can play up the concept of, you know, the fear and hate by having it so the uh, the UN or they don't even think about it. You know, uh, Magneto says, hey, you know, I want peace. I want peace, but we need, you know, we need a piece of the pie here if uh, we're going to, you know, maintain peaceful or peaceable relations here. And uh, the UN's like, nope, <laughs> get out. So I thought that was kind of cool. Other than that, though, um, I don't know that there's a whole lot more to say about this. Uh, we may talk about this more as we move on in uh, future episodes, going back to the X-Men books, since we are putting a lot of pieces in place here to kind of springboard into the next X-Men arc, and uh, there will be an Avengers vs. X-Men bit coming up in the not-too-distant future that uh, I'm sure, or at least I'm guessing, that this will probably play a little bit into one last thing, and it's about the art. Uh, this was a John Buscema joint uh, from Soup to Nuts here. He did the pencils and the inks. And it's a bit scratchy. It's uh, not my favorite look. Very, very scratchy. Felt like uh, it didn't feel like a Marvel book from the art. And, I mean, that's weird to say when it's John Buscema doing the art. But, uh, yeah, very different sort of look. But, um... I guess overall, if you want to know how Magneto came back and uh, you don't want to be surprised when he shows up in X-Men again, this is a three-part story that's well worth your time. You may want to leave out the Olympus stuff. You may want to just gloss over Hawkeye crying about Captain America. Deal with just the Magneto stuff, and I think you'll get a pretty decent story. Now let's hop into the back matter here. Uh, we don't have bullpens. We don't have letters pages, of course, so we are going to continue our look Roy's recollections from the Men Called X feature in Alter Ego number 24, uh, May 2003 cover date. Now, last episode, we wrapped up with Roy getting from, you know, his, his, his start as the writer of X-Men to the introduction of Factor 3. Now, rather than repeating the same, you know, James Bond, Band from Uncle stuff that we've already talked about, let's just jump into the overlong story arc itself, which really doesn't get a whole lot of uh, play here. Which, it's funny, as, as we were working our way through all 11 or 12 issues of the, you know, quote-unquote Factor 3 arc, it did feel like Factor 3 itself kind of fell into the background. You know, it was something that was almost forgotten about. And here in Roy's Recollections, it's, eh, I get a similar feeling, because we're not going to talk a whole heck of a lot about Factor 3. Uh, not the Fallout, not the Mutant Master, not the, not you know, not, not the reappearance of Blob, Eunice, and the rest, it's gonna really be about everything else that's going on in the book. And our boy Roy is very, very talkative, so uh, let's get right into it. He says, In number 29, with the mimic still hanging around, I rung in a Stan Lee Jack Kirby creation, the Super Adaptoid. Years later, an artist whose own ego could use altering would use that term derisively to refer to me, because of my latter-day penchant for adapting Conan and other material rather than making every single story up from scratch. But he was only a minor annoyance. Hey, I'm far from the only person who could be accused of adapting the works of others in one way or another. Let him who is without sin, etc., etc., etc. And I did try to find out who this ego-fueled artist uh, was who said this, but um, 
I guess it really just was a minor annoyance because I couldn't find anything. Uh, if anybody out there knows, please fill me in. And it is interesting here. It's like <laughs> he uses just the, the mention of the super adapter. It doesn't tell us a damn thing about what happens in the story. But he really, really wanted it on record that someone had referred to him as such. It's, uh, I don't know, it's kind of silly. Anyway, let's, uh, let's move on. Roy says, uh, for reasons I can no longer recall, Werner skipped X-Men number 30. Maybe he went on vacation, or perhaps veteran artist Jack Sparling simply walked into Marvel one day and I was told to give him a fill-in story to gain time on the schedule. Werner was a good, meticulous artist, but hardly a speed demon. Sparling's take on the X-Men was quite individualistic. I admired his illustrative technique, even if it didn't all come through as inked by John Tartaglioni, now the mag's regular embellisher. This isn't to disparage Don, John Tartag, as we called him. He was a pro. Jack Kirby penciled the issue's cover, and I was pleased about that, I can tell you. The antagonist was Merlin, of an earlier Thor story, though I gave him the more supervillainous name The Warlock, one I'd reuse later on a better character. I'm sorry Sparling didn't do more for Marvel. With X-Men number 31, April 1967 cover, I conceived a new villain, Cobalt Man, a sort of blue-armored Iron Man. This was in a day where there were lots of furor about a cobalt bomb, a very dirty radioactive weapon. But I had more fun ultimately playing around with language in the story itself. The Never Say Diner and a beatnik-type poet's parody of Charles Schultz's Happiness is a Warm Puppet, and in Candy Southern, named after the heroine of a popular novel by Terry Southern, of which a movie was made, we introduced a supporting character the readers took to. Dan Adkins wandered in, fresh from working for the legendary Wally Wood, to do the cover. Now I want to pop in here to say uh, something about current year or relatively current year critics of uh, the Chris Claremont stuff, where like they try to not so much disparage the work, but uh, make sure everybody knows that it's a reference to something else or it's a, uh, a swipe of something else, like, oh, the brood is alien and uh, the, the Shi'ar is Star Wars and all that kind of stuff here. I feel like Claremont gets a lot of guff for that, but uh, with Roy, and I mean, we're going to talk about it a little bit more as this, uh, as this essay rolls on here, so much of what Roy did and so much of what Roy introduced was a reference or an homage to something else, and uh, I feel like he doesn't really get a whole lot of flack for it the way uh, Claremont does. You know, even things like the Hellfire Club and the, uh, you know, the UK Avengers and stuff like that, it's... Uh, I don't know. It's just something that jumped out at me in the reading here. Let's move on. Roy says, I'd always liked the Juggernaut, Charles Xavier's stepbrother introduced in X-Men 12 and 13, so in number 32 I brought him back in a tale I called, Beware the Juggernaut, My Son. I always loved Stan's titles, which were allusions to other quotes or titles, such as, Thou shall not covet thy neighbor's planet. My own here was, of course, a slightly rephrased line from Lewis Carroll's poem, Jabberwocky. When a coffee shop is invaded by a motorcycle gang in number 32, I believe it was my pal Gary Friedrich, by then working on staff, who came up with the name Satan's Saints, a parody-slash-homage to Hell's Angels. Werner did a nice big panel of the gang rumming their way around the mutants in Mufti like the hapless heroine in the 1950s Brando movie The Wild Ones. And boy, howdy, that was a goofy-ass scene, wasn't it? Um, <laughs> Roy continues... The next issue's conclusion to this story boasted a cover pencil by Gil Kane, except that the comics code stuck its oar in. They felt like the gigantic villain there, other, originally the other-dimensional monstrosity the outcast, I think, was just too hideous, so we had to change the alien to the juggernaut. Seems to me the uncensored version of that cover has been printed somewhere since. In the story, the outcast so resembles a Gil Kane creature that I'm tempted to believe Gil designed him. 
but I don't want to shortchange Werner Roth in any way because I did that once and I've regretted it ever since. And uh, there's a note here saying that there's going to be more about that at the end of the article, but uh, we do have a couple of things to talk about here. Of course, we have seen the original cover here. I did post it on uh, various social media channels, and we discussed it during the episode there where I commented on just how iconic, at least to me, that Juggernaut cover was. And it's interesting to, uh, it was interesting to me to find out that it wasn't going to be the case from the start. It was going to be the outcast on the cover, which I feel like, at least with the power of hindsight, that cover wouldn't have been uh, nearly as iconic had they gone with the original cover, at least in my opinion. Now, the reference to uh, Roy having shortchanged Werner Roth is an anecdote about a time that Roy was serving on a panel at a comic convention and uh, was asked about his time writing X-Men. And he made an offhanded comment that uh, his first run on X-Men featured some of the most boring art ever put to paper. And like a half second later, someone else on the panel apologized to Werner Roth's son, either Jay or Gavin. Uh, If you remember, uh, Werner Roth was known as Jay Gavin in his earliest uh, appearances as Penciler. Uh, Those were references to his son's names. I can't remember which one was at this convention, but, uh, well, they were there, and they just heard Roy Thomas say that their father's work was the most boring work (laughs) ever put to paper. And Roy has said since that he never actually meant to say that. He was just kind of trying to be funny. It was a joke that didn't land. Uh, Um... I don't know how, uh, you know how I feel about that, but, uh, you know, it feels like the uh, Curb Your Enthusiasm music could, could start at that point. That's a very awkward situation, and uh, one that uh, I guess Roy had to try to backpedal from as much as possible, including dedicating, like, almost a full page of this article to that, uh, to that little gaffe. Anyway, let's move on here. Uh, Roy says, Number 34 was drawn by Dan Adkins. And though he, as he'd be the first to admit, there were swipes from Hal Foster in The Giant Robot and Joe Kubert in some angel poses and elsewhere. It was handsome art, though. This was my first use of what would become one of my favorite themes in comics, a war between two previously established entities. In this case, it was the underground rulers Mole Man and Tyrannus. In the future, it would be the Kree versus the Skrulls, Turin versus Makalet, or Makale, I don't know who that is, even Wonderland versus Oz. And I'm pretty sure that last one's a reference to uh, that Captain Carrot miniseries, of all things. Uh, Roy continues, X-Men 35 was very special to me since it was the first time anyone besides Stan wrote Spider-Man as a full-issue guest star. You bet I had to ask permission to use him. Behind a powerful Atkins cover combining shots by Kirby and Ditko, and why not, the Banshee was back too. I never lusted after writing the Spider-Man comic as I did Avengers or Fantastic Four, but I enjoyed bringing Spidey into the book. This turned out to be, for reasons I don't recall, Werner Roth's last full-issue work on the X-Men. Well, maybe you told him his work was boring. I I don't know. Moving on. As of number 36, I began working with an artist whose work I'd grow to like more and more as time went by, Ross Andrew. I had admired his early Wonder Woman and Metal Men at DC, even his self-published Mr. Universe and Get Lost. Like Gil Kane, John Romita, and several young writers who'd enter the field over the next few years, Marv Wolfman, Len Wein, Jerry Conway, et al., I liked Ross's work more than the average comics reader seemed to. George Rousseau's, as George Bell, wasn't an ideal inker for Ross, but he supplied the blacks that Ross tended to leave out. After this, I would look for any opportunity to work with Ross, be it in Submariner, Call the Conqueror, or wherever. I set the story in Washington Square Park, near where Gary and I lived in the heart of Greenwich Village. I guess this is where the Changeling was introduced to, a character who'd serve a useful purpose a couple years down the line. 
Now, a few episodes back, uh, we did have Roy talk about uh, the changeling and how he and Neil Adams both claim like a responsibility or, I guess, credit for how they used him. So Roy is going to try to get out in front of that here uh, in just a little bit. Uh, He continues, With the next issue, Don Heck, at loose ends now that he was no longer penciling Avengers, became inker of Andrew's pencils. But somehow the two halves of a double-page spread on page 11 and 12 wound up not facing each other, but instead being printed back-to-back. This occurred because, at the last minute, ABC TV bought a center spread ad for its fall Saturday morning cartoon lineup, an ad I had to write copy for over the weekend, as I recall. And I didn't realize it would change the layout of the story pages till too late. If there's ever another Marvel Masterworks volume, I hope they'll have those pages face each other at long last. Well, reading these digitally as I have been for the last little while, um, I miss out on things like that, so uh, I didn't know. Uh, He continues, with issue 38, November 1967 cover, perhaps to accommodate Ross's schedule, perhaps just because I thought it might sell a few extra copies, I initiated an X-Men origin series which delved into the days prior to X-Men number one, with Werner as penciler. We started off with Xavier's search for the young mutant who'd become Cyclops. I don't claim that these backup stories, which were soon taken over by Gary and Arnold Drake, were anything earth-shaking, but I will admit to feeling angry when some of these were, quote, written out, unquote, of Marvel continuity a few years back by overambitious writers who wanted to leave their own mark on the Marvel Universe. More, I feel, in the manner of a dog lifting its leg than in the sense of making a meaningful contribution. It frankly smacks of unseemly hubris to decide to bolster one's own ego by unilaterally deciding that one's own idea for an X-Man's origin should take precedence over a story actually written in the Silver Age by the second, third, and fourth people ever to script the X-Men. Hopefully some later X-Writer will one day toss out their deathless contributions as well. And they'll deserve it. What goes around comes around. And, uh, well, I feel like we could probably go on at length (laughs) about this here, but, uh... Hey, we might have in in episodes past. I'm pretty sure I've probably made comments, um, especially in our regular, you know, X-Lapse series where I took issue with uh, Jonathan Hickman having the last say on the Marvel Universe, actually writing, you know, the Tombstone read for it, and uh, how much that got under my skin. I couldn't imagine if I were actually a comics pro seeing that. I would be probably just as perturbed as uh, as Roy is here, and I I can totally get where Roy's coming from here. I'm sure it's... uh, not the most pleasant thing in the world to see your work, you know, written out in lieu of someone who's trying to make their mark. But uh, we'll move on. We'll move on. With issue number 39, the finale of the long-running Factor 3 storyline, I persuaded Stan to let us give the X-Men new costumes to replace those lackluster school uniforms. Ross Andrew designed them, but had left the book by the time they were added, so it fell to Don Heck to introduce them. Also, George Tuska to do the cover. In retrospect, I feel I should have vetoed what looks like suspenders on the angel, since it made it appear that his wings might be artificial, like those of his DC counterpart, Hawkman. They also looked stupid. I mean, that's why it should have been vetoed. Because <laughs> it looked ridiculous. Uh, Roy continues, Number 40 gave me the chance to suggest that the Frankenstein monster might well have been an evil mutant. The X-Men meet Frankenstein, Nuff said, screamed my cover copy. Need I add that Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein is one of my favorite movies? 
The partial inspiration for the story was a 1950s E-Seek horror comic in which Arctic explorers discover the Frankenstein monster encased in ice, reflecting the ending of Mary Shelley's novel. That E.C. story had itself been a takeoff on the 1950 movie The Thing from Another World, with Frankie standing in for the alien carrot played by James Arness. Don Heck found a home, at least for a time, as X-Men's new penciler, inked by George Tuska, who drew the cover on his own. Ross had moved on, and, and never, I suspect, liked drawing any group of heroes. I remember a nice editing touch by Stan on the cover. As originally drawn, the monster is just flattened out against the ship's bulkhead, waiting for the unsuspecting X-Men to walk through the door. Stan wanted to show the monster's power, so he had George redraw his left hand so it was gripping and crushing part of the bulkhead. Okay, we are almost done. We're almost done. Just a few more anecdotes here. Um, another monstrosity popped up in X-Men number 41, February 1968 cover date. Grotesque, a subterranean prince mutated into a monster who was inspired, if that's the term, in equal parts by the Submariner and King Cull the Beastman from Fawcett's Captain Marvel back in the 50s. The name grew out of memories of the hideous villain played by Boris Karloff in the movie Dick Tracy Meets Gruesome. Maybe I even wanted to call my character Gruesome. If so, Stan objected. He wasn't wild about the name Grotesque either, and he had me refer to him in the title as The Subhuman. Considering Grotesque's above-mentioned forebears, I didn't mind. I had fun with the idea of a guy whose main ambition is to destroy the world, himself along with it. And now, in our final recollection, Roy says, By now, though, sales reports on X-Men going back some issues were soft enough for Stan to come up with the idea of reducing the size of the mag's logo on the covers, playing up individual heroes or villains instead. We started out with the death of Professor X, though, and suck on this, Neil Adams, I always intended that if we needed to bring him back, we'd say it was a changeling who had died disguised as Xavier. John Buscema penciled a powerful cover, and Grotesque became the villain responsible for the Professor's apparent demise. And that just about brings us current on uh, Roy's time in X-Men here. He's not long for uh, for the comic, at least uh, for his first go-round. He'll be leaving... I believe with issue 44, maybe 43. I think 44, maybe he just plotted. But we will, you know, we'll get there when we get there. We don't have to wait too long, it seems. But uh, I hope you've enjoyed this little look into Roy's recollections here. It's been kind of eye-opening for me here, especially seeing how um, tonally different the uh, interview with DeFalco was in the comic creators on X-Men book and his own recollections here in this essay in, uh, well, his own magazine, Alter Ego. Very, very different tone. At least uh, that's what I got out of it. And uh, I do uh, I do solicit anybody's opinion who'd like to share their thoughts on uh, Roy and his uh, recollections about his time, his first go-around with the X-Men. But that'll do it for the back matter here. Let's hop into a quick, quick DCBS update, where uh, if you're following along with the show, you know that I didn't receive any of my current year X-Men or Spider-Man books, which... As mentioned, kind of put the uh, monkey wrench into the current year programs. Well, I told you last time that DCBS said, hey, feel free to go find replacements on your own, and we'll refund you the, the money back. And, well, yesterday I did just that, and I was able to find all the books except for two. I'm missing two from November, so I'm going to have to uh, try and find them maybe later on today. I do have to hit... Today is a Wednesday as I'm recording this, and I have to hit the shop to pick up an issue of Miles Morales for uh, Weblapsed that I didn't realize would be tying into the Beyond storyline. So when I'm out snagging that, I will see if I can't track down the other two books that I'm missing. But uh, I tell you what, one thing that really got under my skin yesterday going to, you know, the new comics wall or the 
recent release wall is that uh, I had to get variant covers for two of the books. And I hate that. I really, really hate having to get variant covers here, which makes me question, why in the hell variants are the only ones left on the shelves? If the, you know, quote-unquote real cover sells out quicker than the variant covers, how about we stop making these damn variant covers? Let's just have the one cover, because that's the one that it looks like most people want. Except for the Jags who use those speculator apps on their phone to try to see what's going to be valuable for exactly one day until the next variants come out. I don't see the urgency behind having variants on every single comic. You guys know how I feel about that, but now, having been faced with it, and having to buy a variant because I was afraid I wouldn't be able to find the actual regular cover, really got under my skin. And I mean, I had to pick up a Dan Jurgens variant on an issue of Spider-Man. I love Dan Jurgens, but why the hell do I need a Dan Jurgens pinup variant of uh, Spider-Man number 79? I don't. And apparently, nobody does, because it was all I could find. I'll hop off my petulant soapbox for now, um, but for the housekeeping bit here, uh, we're going to continue doing what we're doing here. We're going to wrap up this week with Essentials. Uh, next week, it's Merry X Lapsed, year two. After that, we'll get back into the current year stuff, and everything will be back to normal. Alrighty, now I'd love to hop into the mailbag here. I know there's some mail in there, but uh, I'm having trouble accessing the mailbox. I don't want to tell people to not send mail there, because I'm... Hoping to have that cleared up uh, probably by the end of the day. So if there is mail in there, rest assured I'm not ignoring it. <laughs> I will be getting to it just as soon as I can access it. But I thank you all in advance for uh, for sending mail. Um, but uh, speaking of thank yous, let's head to the shout-out department. Um, this is thanking the folks on social media who engaged and shared and did all that good stuff that helps raise the profile of this itty-bitty little show. Over on Twitter, I want to thank Evan Bevins, Wacky Bronze Silver Age comic book villains, Chris Bailey, Jeremiah, Between the Pages blog, 21st Century Boys, Jesse D. Young, Joe Crawford, Billy D., Walt Nealon, Dave Schultz, Ed Moore, Bizarro Jimmy Olsen, Peter D., Jody Yerden, Angelica at Jellybutt, uh, Jason Colby, Longbox Crusade, and Pat Sampson. Over on Facebook, I want to thank Chris Bailey, Jeremiah, Evan Bevins, Walt Nealon, Joe Crawford, Pat Sampson, and Billy D. Then on Instagram, I'd like to thank Joe Crawford, Mark Jagger, Carl and Teddy Thompson, Greg, J Mama Zadang, The Mint Condition Podcast, Hard Scrabble Comic Collection, and Frankie French Toast Frizzetti. And I tell you what, I, I love that name. That's a great name. Um, let's keep thanking folks here. The patrons over at patreon.com slash xlapsed. Andrew Franklin, Ed Moore, Walt Nealon, Jeremiah, Jason Colby, The Scary Stuff Podcast, Jesse DeYoung, Damian, Peter McPherson, Mark Jagger, Herman, and Andrew in Belfast. Thank you all so much for your support, even through this uh, sort of kind of gnarly December, this very, very busy time of year. But that's going to do it for me today. If anybody out there would like to uh, write in, say hi, do whatever, please feel free to do so. You can find me on Twitter at Ace Comics. Find me on Instagram at 90sXmen. Maybe I'll be able to figure out how to use the direct messaging system on Instagram one of these days. Of course, the email, weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com. The voicemail is 623-396-JERK. For blog posts and show notes, you can head to chrisisoninfiniteearths.com. You can also chat us up on Facebook. Our group is 90s X-Men. Of course, the complete audio archives are available on all of your favorite and least favorite podcasting aggregates, chrisandreggie.podbean.com, Chris and Reggie's Cosmic Treadmill. And finally, for exclusive content, behind-the-scenes stuff, and great folks to talk to, you can head over to patreon.com slash xlapsed. But I think I've talked enough for now. I would like to thank you all so much for sharing some of your day with me today. And uh, 
indulging me in learning a bit more about Roy Thomas's recollections on his time with the Uncannies. And until next time, as always, I'll talk to you again real soon. See ya.